isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Before Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Bill Gates, there was Howard Hughes, an eccentric billionaire, aviator, movie producer, and businessman whose every action attracted the paparazzi. So when Hughes decided to move to Las Vegas in 1966, he chose the dead of the night on Thanksgiving on a secret train. But why Vegas? Today on CityCast Las Vegas, I get to chat with our friend and Hughes expert, Jeff Schumacher, to answer that question and to talk about how Howard Hughes impacted our city. It's Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. I'm Vogue Robinson, and this is CityCast Las Vegas. Jeff Schumacher, how are you doing this morning? And thank you for being on CityCast. Well, thank you for having me again. I I really enjoy talking with you and I'm doing fine. Wonderful. Good to hear. So I heard, (laughs) and we did some research to back it up, that Las Vegas was the place that Howard Hughes decided to come to on Thanksgiving Day. So we're coming up on the anniversary of that. Why did Howard Hughes come to Vegas on Thanksgiving in 1966? Well, you know, that's a really good question. I think there's still a bit of mystery around that. Mm. But uh, the long story is that, you know, Howard Hughes in the early 60s was having a great deal of conflict with the shareholders of Transworld Airlines, TWA. He Mm. was the owner of TWA, but he was a very eccentric owner. And TWA was, was having some trouble competing in the marketplace and the shareholders kind of blamed Hughes for that. Some of the, the things that he had done, decisions he had made, they felt had hurt the airline. Okay. So there was a great deal of conflict between Hughes and, and there were lawsuits filed. And this is one of the reasons that Hughes went into hiding. It's kind of why he went into seclusion, because he didn't want to testify in court over the TWA matter. Well, long story short, in 1965, uh, Hughes sells all his shares in TWA, oh. and he owned you know the bulk of the airline, and he received a check from TWA for five hundred and forty-six million dollars. Good God! Some people say that was one of the largest, perhaps the largest single check that had been written up to that time. So Hughes had all this money all of a sudden, and when you suddenly have a lot of money, who comes looking for you? Long lost family members and the IRS. And the IRS. At this point, we're talking about the IRS. And Hughes was not a big fan of the IRS, as many big business people are not. Right. And so he was looking for ways to spend that money so that he wouldn't have to pay taxes on it. Mm-hmm. He concluded somewhere in the 65 to 1966 period that he wanted to relocate. And he decided to relocate to Las Vegas. And Nevada is, you know, low tax state. 
And he had great memories of Nevada and Las Vegas from earlier in his life. And so he decided to move to Las Vegas. And he came here by train, you know, in the days preceding Thanksgiving. I think the reason he came here on Thanksgiving is is sort of the the simplest answer, which is it was the time when he could be least detected because more people were distracted by their Thanksgiving dinner, their taking time off and so forth. So he could kind of come in in the night and and nobody would know he was here. No press being like a eccentric billionaire. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Moves to Las Vegas. So he, uh, his uh, right-hand man at the time, Bob Mayhew, orchestrated an entire train route from Boston, Massachusetts to Las Vegas without anybody knowing. So he was working with the, the CEOs of these train companies to set up this special train that was going to travel that distance without anybody knowing. And Hughes was the only passenger. He was the only cargo. He arrived in the middle of the night. They stopped the train up by Cary Avenue in North Las Vegas, actually. Mm-hmm. So they were a little bit outside of town. They stopped the train. And Hughes is taken off the train on a stretcher. He had a lot of uh, medical issues at that time. And it wasn't you know, really feasible, and I guess, to, for him to just step off the train and hop in the back of the van. And they drove him to the Desert Inn Hotel. This is in the middle of the night. Okay. They take him up the, uh, the emergency stairs and he's carried up there and taken up to the ninth floor of the the desert inn where all the rooms had been rented every room on the ninth floor the penthouse floor had been rented by hughes wow and his aides and this was all planned out in great detail and uh, hughes arrives on the ninth floor and he proceeds to live there for four years wait four years in a hotel just yes. the whole top floor. That's right. Wow. This is next level. <laughs> Can you tell me kind of a little bit about what his life was like in Vegas? So, you know, he was by this time had become very reclusive and, and eccentric. Uh, he lived, as I mentioned, on the ninth floor the entire time. He really actually only stayed in one room on the ninth floor. Mm-hmm. It was his room. It was not particularly big. It was about 15 by 17, so the size of a, you know, a master bedroom in most Las Vegas homes. And it had a bathroom, of course. And so he is staying in this room by himself most of the time. But he has about half a dozen aides who are handpicked by him and his staff to take care of his needs. So they bring him his meals, and they bring in memos and and he just sends out memos they bring him his magazines you know or what, whatever he needs or wants they take care of that for him and there's a lot of legend and myths surrounding this whole scenario because he was had all of these procedures that he wanted his aides to follow in order to exchange something with him like physically because he was a germaphobe he did not want to touch something that had been touched by one of the aides. So basically, this this whatever this was had to be wrapped in, you know, Kleenexes or something like that, okay. and then it would be exchanged. It would be handed to Hughes so that he wasn't touching whatever had been touched by, by the aide. Things like that were actually true. They really did happen. Wow! And the uh, the windows were blacked out, so he often was in the dark, and he had. A lot of uh, um, bathroom issues, so he was in there a lot for hours at a time sometimes. Word. 
So it was a very strange existence. He was only communicating with the outside world by telephone and by memo. <laughs> because there's no Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. There's no other way to make announcements. Was he still an aviator and a producer and conducting business at this time? By this time, he was mostly focused on buying properties in Nevada. So he kind of moved to Nevada with the idea that he was going to spend money when he got here. So he bought land. He bought a golf course. He bought a couple of airports. He, uh, yeah, he bought a TV station, Channel 8. And then he, uh, there was threatening to kick him out of the Desert Inn Hotel just a few months after he got there because the owners are like, you've got the entire penthouse floor. You're not a gambler. None of your aides are gamblers. We're losing money on this deal. So there was some pressure applied to Hughes for him to move out. And he didn't want to move out. He was very happy there, apparently. Right. And so <laughs> instead of moving out, he bought the hotel. He, uh, he engaged with Mo Dalitz, who was the owner of the Desert Inn and a mobster. And they worked out an arrangement where Hughes purchased the Desert Inn. And then he was allowed to stay there for three and a half more years. What's a story from Hughes's life in Las Vegas that you think would surprise people? Well, okay, so I'll talk about his eating habits because they're very unusual. Hmm. He always liked ice cream, and so he would have ice cream after dinner. So typically he wanted vanilla. (laughs) But then he suddenly wanted, this is the most famous story probably from his Las Vegas time, which was he, he really wanted banana, this banana nut ice cream that 31 flavors Baskin Robbins had. Okay. So the aide goes down to the Baskin Robbins and says, I want banana nut. And uh, they're out. They don't have banana nut anymore. Mm. They're not out. They're not making, you know, they have seasonal brands or whatever. So the aide is panicked, like, oh, my God, how can I tell Howard Hughes he can't have banana nut ice cream? So the aide very cleverly calls Baskin Robbins, you know, the corporate office and says, will you make us a large amount of Baskin Robbins ice cream? Bro. And they're like, yeah, okay. And then, of course, Hughes has a lot of money. He'll pay for it. So they buy all this Baskin. When I say they buy all this, they had to buy a minimum amount. So we're talking, I don't know how many, you know, gallons of ice cream, but hundreds of gallons of this uh, banana nut ice cream. So it's trucked into Las Vegas. It's brought to the Desert Inn. And amazingly, Hughes, the very next night, no longer wants banana nut ice cream. No. He wants some other other flavor. So all of this effort went for naught. And the story, as the story goes, uh, the Desert Inn Hotel was handing out banana nut ice cream to its guests <laughs> like crazy for months afterward. <laughs> they had cream. this huge stockpile. <laughs> they could boast we're the only place that has banana nut ice cream from Baskin Robbins. That's right. <laughs> If you were to compare Howard Hughes to a wealthy person today, would he be more of like an Elon Musk person or a Bill Gates? Oh, he's uh, he was, you know, a lot of people compare Elon Musk to Howard Hughes and just sort of the eccentricity, the sort of the maverick style. I actually think it's an unfair comparison in some ways because 
as problematic as Howard Hughes was, I have more respect for him than I do for Elon Musk. But mm -hmm. that's more of a personal thing. Hughes and Elon Musk are similar in the sense that they were they took chances. They went out and did things on their own. They were ahead of the curve in many ways and also extremely strange people. I mean, Bill Gates is fairly normal, <laughs> right? Fairly normal person. <laughs> and, you know, he built a, an amazing company and now he's doing incredible philanthropy. That's another difference between Bill Gates and Howard Hughes is that Hughes uh, was not much of a philanthropist. He, he wasn't really thinking along those terms the way Bill Gates clearly does. Hmm. Okay. What impact did Hughes have on how Las Vegas looks today? So I think he had a pretty big impact. And there's a couple of ways to look at that. The first one is that he ended up buying six casinos in Las Vegas. And of those six casinos, all of them had mob connections when he bought them. Mm -hmm. So he pushed, he kind of nudged the mob out of six casinos. He wanted to buy more. He, If he had bought the Stardust Hotel, then it would not have been a mob place in the 70s and we wouldn't have had the movie Casino. So maybe... Maybe that's not, maybe I'm glad he didn't buy it. But he bought these six casinos, he nudged the mob out, and he also opened the door for more corporate investment in Las Vegas. So if it, at that time, even though we think today of Howard Hughes as this very eccentric uh, person, recluse, all these weird things he was doing, at the time, he was a very respected businessman. And if he's going to invest in Las Vegas, Maybe it's okay for other companies to invest here. You know, it's Sin City and all that. But if if mainstream America in the in the guise of Howard Hughes is willing to invest here, then maybe Hilton might come to town, which they did, mm. or Ramada might come to town, which they did, and other companies that are you know Wall Street kind of mainstream uh, USA companies. So I think Hughes opened the door for that. The other thing that's really important about Hughes in terms of his impact on Las Vegas was his purchase of this large tract of land to the west of Las Vegas, uh, which he called Hughes Site, H-U-S-I-T-E. Oh. It's about 25,000 acres, and he bought it in the early 50s, and he wanted to turn that into a location for Hughes Aircraft, for his aircraft company. He never did do that, but he held on to the land, and then when he died— uh, his heirs, who were led by his cousin, who he, whom he didn't really know, but his cousin, William Lummis, decided this would be a great place for a master plan community and proceeded to start building Summerlin, okay. which obviously had a pretty profound impact on Las Vegas over the past you know, 30, 40 years now. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's funny because we always talk about Nevada and the Wild West. And so like kind of people coming in and wanting to sort of, I guess, tame it or put their flag in it. Yeah. I know you have an event coming up about Howard Hughes and his Mormon will. Can you tell us about the event and what is a Mormon will? What does that mean? <laughs> well, yeah. So I do have an event. Thank you for asking. It's at uh, December 1st. Uh, 7 p.m. at the uh, Clark County Library, which a lot of people call the Flamingo Library, uh, over by UNLV. And I'm going to be speaking about the Mormon Will, which was this document that sort of emerged a, a matter of uh, weeks after Howard Hughes died in 1976. And it was a handwritten will that you know purportedly had been written by Howard Hughes. Now, the context is that when Hughes died, 
nobody could find a will. Like, so nobody's like, everybody's like, where, what are we going to do with the, all these huge companies and all this money? Where's it going to go? And mm-hmm. the heirs to Howard Hughes were very interested in it, but so were the executives and his companies and everybody had their hand out. They want something here. And suddenly out of nowhere appears this handwritten will. It's called the, the Mormon will because the will was delivered to the Mormon church headquarters in Salt Lake City, kind of in this mysterious way. And they brought it to the district court in Las Vegas. And a judge here took it seriously enough that we ended up having a whole trial based on the validity of the will. Mm. Ultimately, the will was deemed to be fake, not real. And at that point, the family heirs inherited the empire. But there's another part to this Mormon will story. Okay. And that's the story of Melvin Dumar. He was on the front page of every newspaper in America in 1976 because he was named in this handwritten will. And Melvin Dumar was a guy who was working at a gas station in Willard, Utah. And before that, he had lived in Nevada. Just a regular guy working a job, right? He was going to college, you know, he's trying to get ahead. But his name mysteriously appears in this Mormon will. And so he would he stood to inherit one sixteenth of the Hughes Ooh. Empire, which would at the time people were using the the number $156 million that would have gone to Melvin Dumar. So here's this, you know, rags to riches story potentially of this guy. Well, Melvin told this story to, to anyone who would listen that in 1967, that's when Hughes was here. He was here from 66 to 70. In 1967, he was driving from Gabs, Nevada, which is north of Tonopah, south to Las Vegas. Okay. And he pulled off on the side of the road. This is in the middle of the night to take, go to the restroom, go to the bathroom. And he's out on this dirt road. And he, in his headlights, he sees this body basically lying in the in the road. He goes to check it out and he discovers this older man with long scraggly beard. He's got blood on his side of his face. And okay. and you know it's amazing. So Dumar's like, what the heck am I gonna do with this guy? Well, he gets him in the car and he drives him to Las Vegas. And during the course of that trip from where they had picked him up outside of Beatty all the way to Las Vegas, they have a little bit of a conversation at which point at one point the man, the old man, says that he is Howard Hughes. Okay. And Melvin's like, oh, come on, you know, this you're being silly. He thought the guy was a bum, you know, just kind of destitute kind of guy out there. And lo and behold, that story happens. He takes this elderly guy to the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas, drops him off, and that's the end of that story. And then, you know, 1976 comes along, Howard Hughes dies, uh, this Mormon will shows up actually at Melvin's gas station in Willard, Utah. This man brings it to him. And then it was Melvin who took the will to the to the Mormon church headquarters in Salt Lake City. So the big question is, did Melvin actually pick up Howard Hughes in the desert or not? And is the will real or not? And I have my conclusions. I'll share them and break them down at my uh, program on December 1st. Yeah, do people reason to come through? Yeah. Well, Jeff Schumacher, thank you so much for being on CityCast Las Vegas again. It's always a pleasure to have you. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
If you didn't catch those details, Jeff's event will take place on Thursday, December 1st at the Clark County Library at 7 p.m. Be sure to check out his book, too, Howard Hughes, Power, Paranoia, and Palace Intrigue. Now, here's some news for you. $97 million. That's the price tag so far of a failed attempt to modernize the state's wheezing human resources and finance software. After three years, the state has tossed the software and the company hired to implement it due to major chaos. Now the state is back where it started. Also, this new year is coming, and so is CES, the most influential tech event in the world, but not without some drama. The Culinary Union said that more than 300 food service workers at the Las Vegas Convention Center could authorize a strike vote in early December. That's all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. If you enjoyed the show, now's the time to send this episode to a friend and then rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. If you've already done all that, then thank you. You're a real one. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Talk soon. He left rather abruptly in 1970, also on Thanksgiving, by the way. I'm just imagining what if he had continued to live in Las Vegas, what more he might have done.